Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Um, what you'll be listening to today is a message that was recorded earlier in December 2019. I'm now uploading it as January 2020 has started. And uh, to be honest, I think we uh, have been reminded that the world is a crazy place and that life is unpredictable. And for many of us, this past Christmas was a time of joy and celebration, but for many others, it was a time of dealing with grief and remembering people that are no longer with us, uh, maybe dealing with illness or pain or uh, anxiety and depression and uh, maybe financial struggles. And my my goal is to, to address all of those things um, through this message. It is a Christmas message, but it is uh, based on a text uh, from 2 Timothy as we've been reading and studying through it. So my hope is that you are blessed. Um, Father, we thank you because you bless us with your presence each and every day. And uh, we only ask that we may be here present uh, with you in this moment and have a, an encounter uh, with you in a way that is uh, unique and different and that we can perceive and understand uh, your Holy Spirit uh, here with us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, and uh, Marshall read um, kind of what I believe is, is the good news section in this chapter, and it's at the very end of it. Uh, but remember, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's reminding him, and he's giving him advice about you know, the work that he's going to take over. Uh, Paul is in prison. He's, he's about to just... Uh, he, he knows he's not going to make it out. So Timothy is his successor. And just to follow from last time, there's been some issues in the church. There's been some, some false teachings. There's been some weird uh, philosophies. And, and we've, we've encountered this false gospel. But now uh, Paul turns and, he, and he, he begins talking about the last days. Um, and so the first verse of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy if we begin there, he begins saying, you must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers. Profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, right? swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid them, for among them are those who make their way into households and captivate Silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. But they will not make much progress because, as in the case of those two men, their folly will become plain to everyone. So we get a sense Paul's urgency is clear. He says, listen, pay attention. You must understand this. The last days will be distressing. 
To Paul, the last days were already there. were already happening to him. Jesus ushered in the last days. But these were also, like I said, Paul's, Paul's last days. And he himself is distressed. He's in prison and he's going to face death and he knows it. But there are worse days coming up, he says. How's that for good news? <laughs> Let's pay attention, right? It says, it's not, so much, it's not so much that there will be distressing times, but rather the reason why these times are coming that, Tim, that, that Paul wants Timothy to understand. He says, look, bad times are coming because people will be lovers of themselves. They will love money. They'll be boastful, arrogant, abusive. They will disobey their parents. They will be ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, which means to be excessive, or how we say young people to be extra. <laughs> the brutes, right? They're violent. Haters of good, treacherous, betraying one another. They're reckless. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness. They appear to be godly, but in fact, they deny God's power. And that's quite a list. And it's not a very hope-filled or joy-inducing as as we'd expect from Scripture. And Paul says, avoid these people. See, earlier in chapter 2, Paul had warned Timothy of two men who had gone astray. They had begun teaching things contrary to the truth. These teachings were hurtful to the church. It was upsetting their faith. People were having useless debates and believing lies. And, and mainly, they, they were beginning to ignore the actual physical, tangible effects that the gospel should have had on people and the world around them. So he says, avoid them. For among them are those who make their way into households and captivate, as my version says, silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires who are always being instructive, instructed but can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So now I have to pause here because Paul seems to take a swing at women for some reason. And well, that must be addressed, right? So let me hazard an explanation. See, the Greek text uses the word gunekarion, which translates literally into little women. Here used in a negative connotation. But so, so I think silly or weak, as some translations have it, isn't the most accurate way of translating this, in my opinion. See, the fact that Paul refers to them as little implies that he isn't talking about women in general. But I'm sure he's also not just talking about their height. These aren't short women or little girls. I believe Paul is talking here about adult women with immature understanding. They really should have understood more since they were always being taught. They were in church, but they never seemed to arrive at the truth. And now it's made worse by these, these two men who are, who are disturbing and they're teaching lies. But why women, we ask? So it's possible that while men were away at work, women were working at home. And these false teachers sneak in imperceptively to, Paul says, capture them with their false gospel teachings. 
Notice that Paul says they are sneaking into homes, not workplaces or marketplaces or in public, but rather homes. Notice Paul's military word choice as well. He says capturing. Remember from chapter one, he says you must be a good soldier of Christ. He says his aim here, I think Paul's aim is to point out that these women are in danger. They, they didn't have a full understanding in their faith. They were not mature enough and they didn't understand the gospel fully. And Paul describes them as being swayed by all kinds of desires and, and, and overwhelmed by sin. And they're already in danger to begin with. And now they're even in worse danger because of these myths that are parading around as truth. Now, that's obviously a problem. There's a weak spot in the church. And I'm going to go ahead and say that maybe this was perhaps the result of Paul's earlier teaching in 1 Timothy about teaching women to learn in silence. Teaching that a man is the spiritual head of the household places the responsibility of maturing in the faith on the man and not the woman. Excluding women from raising questions and increasing their understanding in church would have naturally led them to have less understanding and become more susceptible to these false teachings. See, see, now an effect of the teaching that he had given in 1 Timothy is now coming to light in 2 Timothy. You know, contrast also the fact that Timothy was taught the scriptures by two women, his mother and his grandmother. Paul himself refers to them at the beginning of this letter. Timothy knows women who are strong in the faith, who have matured in their understanding despite having an unbelieving father himself. So, so Paul has a few holes in his argument and his teaching. And I think, I think this teaches us that all ministers are human beings and can make mistakes in their judgments. But the following generation should always strive to be better. Timothy must strive to be better than Paul. Let's also not forget that Paul was trained as a Pharisee and applied the common rules of the synagogue to the church. Men and women sat separate in synagogue. Women were not allowed to speak. He's simply continuing in the Jewish tradition, even though he fought so hard to move away from it. See, I think Paul's writings give us a glimpse into his developing and maturing understanding as time went on. In my opinion, Paul's understanding in the second letter to Timothy has progressed since the first. But now we see that the church is beginning to have these issues of immaturity and lack of understanding. And he even mentions these two men, he compares them to, to Janus and Jambres, who, who, were, who were these Egyptian magicians that tried to recreate these miracles that God was, was doing in Egypt to, 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 to release his people from bondage. He's saying these people are doing just that. They're taking the truth and twisting it and trying to deceive you. So immaturity in the faith, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge of the scriptures. We don't have that problem, do we? See, it's not limited to, quote unquote, little women. 
what we're dealing with today is little people, both men and women. Immaturity in the faith and misunderstanding the gospel. See, what I'm afraid of today is the lack of knowledge in youth of the simple stories of the Bible, creation, the fall, the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Exodus. I'm not just specifically talking about our kids in Colton. I'm just talking about all kids in general who grow up in the church. These are our actual little ones. What are we passing on? And what about us adults? Many of our Bibles sit neglected on our shelves. See, I sense a lack of appetite for the scriptures, the hearing, reading, the learning of them. Now, now you must understand that your salvation doesn't hinge on how many hours you read the Bible or how many church services you attended or whether you've got the KJV or the Living Translation on your iPhone. The scriptures lead us to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the problem we're dealing with is an apathy toward the scriptures. But Paul tells Timothy to remember them and remember whom he learned them from. His mother, his grandmother, perhaps his Sabbath school teachers. They were the people who influenced his Faith, we are responsible to pass on our knowledge to younger generations. It wasn't simply the remembrance of the scrolls that were read in Timothy's childhood that that Paul is talking about, but also remember the relationship you had to the people that read them to you. Remember both, Paul says. But what happens if we pass on knowledge without relationship? Nothing happens. It takes both the understanding and the living with the word. Immature faith and lack of understanding of Scripture leaves us in danger of believing lies. You see, when the highest courts and powers of the land twist Scripture to manipulate minds, those immature in the faith can be swayed from the truth. That's not a hypothetical threat. It's a very real problem all around the world. We've heard too many politicians twist the Bible to support things that directly oppose truth, to sway the minds of any who will listen to them. Remember that there are those who have only a form of godliness. There is a very real, tangible, even political effect of the gospel. But it is not Republican. It is not Democrat. The politics of the kingdom of heaven are above these parties and often directly oppose them. The politics of the kingdom turn the world on its head. The living word disturbs the status quo. Jesus Christ is not good news to earthly kingdoms. Paul says, indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, The main reason Paul was persecuted was because he proclaimed Jesus as king. It doesn't seem that that dangerous to say that out loud today, but you have to understand that proclaiming Jesus as king was in direct opposition to calling Caesar, the emperor, the king, because the emperor was also to be worshipped. Paul doesn't try to explain it away 
as Jesus just simply being the king of his heart, like some of us tend to do at times. No, Paul says Jesus is king over Caesar, direct political and religious sovereignty. Jesus is king means that Jesus is above human kingdoms. And if Jesus is king, we must live according to his will, even if it means going against the accepted standards. Jesus is king means you and I might have to reconsider our political affiliation. Jesus is king means we may have to reconsider our aim in life. Let's not forget that even Jesus' birth was seen as a threat to King Herod. You see, kings don't like to have kings above them. Accountability isn't in our human nature. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, and you're likely quoting Romans 13 in your heads right now, that every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. It's the classic Paul versus Paul argument. Let's not forget that Paul is speaking in Romans about the characteristics of a true Christian. Because the sentence immediately before that says, Do not be overcome by evil, but but overcome evil with good. Paul sought to overcome evil by doing what, what was right. He made intelligent and informed decisions regarding the gospel and the world he lived in. He figured authorities exercised law in a way to keep the peace. And as he continues in Romans, he find out, we find out that Paul wants the believers to live in peace within their Roman Empire. Follow the rules. Don't start unnecessary trouble. Vengeance belongs to God. Do not take justice into your own hands. Pay your taxes. Don't withhold them simply because you're citizens of heaven now. What he never says is that the authorities are to be respected above God. There is authority that is influenced by God, and then there's authority influenced by an ungodly influence, the kind that extorts, cheats, lies, kills, and deceives. Each of us experience these, these influences. We all have a tendency toward them. It's the human nature. The ungodly influence follows us. And the problem with human perception is that we often believe what we want to believe. And once we believe it, we count it as truth. That this is why the idea of relative truth is so popular. But if, but if you hear that this what I'm saying and you think, well, that's right, tell it how it is, Henry, then, then I'll ask you to take a good hard look at what you believe as truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. How does your truth measure up to that? That's the real question. But you wouldn't be able to test it if you don't, don't know the scriptures. The scriptures testify of Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the king. The trouble is that even when we know the scriptures, it's possible to be deaf to the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul reminds Timothy that the scriptures are inspired by God. God is the inspirational source 
Without the source, you cannot arrive at the truth any more than you can arrive at the North Pole with no compass. The scriptures are the map and God is the compass. The Bible is not an answer book. The Bible is a case book from which we learn about God's grace. The scriptures don't save you. Jesus does. There is no scripture without God, but God has been since the scriptures, even before they were thought of. In Jesus' words, in John 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify about me. So even when we do search the scriptures, we can miss the truth by miles. And the thought of it feels hopeless. The human condition, so far from the mark, so far from God's will. But Paul says to Timothy, now, in verse 10, now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Paul says, continue in what you learned and firmly believed, knowing the people that taught it to you and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Paul says, I know things are going from bad to worse and deception will be everywhere. But you have a light. You have something sacred. The scriptures are inspired by God and are useful to be trained in righteousness so that you can be equipped to do every good work. There's good news, Timothy. You have inspired writings These will guide you to salvation through Jesus. Things are going to get bad. But remember how from childhood you've known these scriptures. Remember the scrolls that your mom used to read to you out loud at home as you were growing up? Remember those stories, the ones that talk about this God. And remember who you learned them from. These writings will train and equip you to do good work to counteract the effects of godlessness in your life and the lives of those around you. Timothy, you might think things are going to get hopeless, but look up. Remember the word, because those words are a witness to Jesus. Paul tells him to remember the people who taught him, the relationships that led him to faith, his mother, his grandmother, and even Paul himself had been his guides. Even though Paul paints a scary picture of the last days, he also tells Timothy how to make it through. 
Here's a map, he says, and here's a compass. As long as you have both, you're going to be okay. God made provision for you. And isn't that the case? The world around us seems hopeless, but God made provision for us. So those scriptures lead to both a physical and a spiritual salvation. In Adventism, we like to use the word holistic a lot right, to talk about our approach to health. Well, God takes a holistic approach to salvation as well. It's not just about your spirit. It's also about your mind and your body and those around you. It's not only about humanity. It's not just humanity that will be restored, but all of creation. The planet itself will be restored. This is amazing grace. And Jesus is the reason we have grace. And he's the reason we seek to live godly lives. See, the Jesus, this Jesus died on the cross to put an end to this age of darkness and bring us into his marvelous light, as Peter says. This Jesus is looking for someone like you to carry the gospel, to carry the torch of God's truth, Jesus Christ. The good news is we not only have a map of the scriptures, but we have the compass too. We have the scriptures and we have Jesus of whom they testify. We have the spirit of God whose presence leads us to greater truth, to present truth. This is not philosophy. This is a person, Jesus Christ. You see, when God chose to reveal himself in human form, he didn't make divisions between genders, he chose a woman, Mary, a young woman. And surely Mary knew the scriptures and was mature in the faith enough to be willing to participate in God's plan to save the world. Surely she had read the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 17 where it says, and, and, and the Lord himself will give you a sign. You see, the virgin will be found with child and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that when, when the angel of God shows up to her and tells her about these things, she knows what this is about. When God chose to redeem us, he chooses Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Jesus came to this planet by no action of a man. It was the woman. God restored the place of the woman, even though the man, Adam, was created first. It was through a woman, Mary, that God entered our world, I can almost see Mary reaching for that scroll of Isaiah. I can almost hear her reading it to a young Jesus as he sat on her lap. As she read of the Messiah to come, about his suffering and his love, passing on her knowledge and her faith to him. Can we see Mary working through a holy fear, holding back the tears as she begins to realize that this child is the one, that, that she held her Savior in her arms? Mary, did you know, is a song to which Mary's answer would have been, yes, I always knew. Mary beat all of the highly educated scholars and theologians to a Christ-centered reading of the Bible. She was the first to make that breakthrough, to read the scriptures while holding on to the very Son of God. This is how we should read the Bible. 
having the words in one hand and holding the hand of Christ in the, uh, in the other. It's Christmas time. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born to marry a peasant girl in the town of Bethlehem, the Savior of the world, the revelation of God's self to us who had little to no understanding at all. He is the source of life and truth. He came down to live among people. God chose to reveal himself to us then and now. Christmas is a time of celebration, a time of joy, because even as we read these words written so long ago, the source of inspiration is here with us now. The effects of Jesus' life have rocked the very foundations of the kingdoms of earth. Jesus' death has shattered the gates of death, and through him is eternal life. The kings of this earth will faint at his return, and the devil himself will be finished. Jesus Christ has come. Redemption has begun. And you today are in a unique position to receive him. Are you poor in spirit? Are you mourning? Are you powerless? Are you hungry for justice? Have you been expending yourself, offering mercy to people without anything in return? Have you been pure in heart? Have you been hard at work making peace? Have you been persecuted for doing the right thing? Blessed are you because your king has been there. Your king is there with you. Your king is not one who has no experience of suffering. Your king is not one who has never experienced powerlessness or injustice or persecution, violence, or even poverty. No, your king has experienced all of those things. Your king does not place men above women, rich above poor, powerless, uh, powerful above powerless, well-being over suffering, Blessed are you because if your king is nothing like the kings that cheat, lie, steal, and deceive, then your king's presence is a rod of iron to them and shatters them to pieces. Blessed are you because you have Jesus. You have the living word, the way, the truth, the life. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It is him that the scriptures testify about. Jesus has been God's response to us all along. At the first Christmas, God gave us Jesus, the first Christmas gift with your name on it. You have been predestined by God to open this gift, yet it's your choice to accept it. So this Christmas, though your skies may be gray, remember where your king was born. Remember to whom he was born. Remember his words and his love for us. May we all experience the true spirit of Christmas. Amen. Though you're in the middle of a battle with addiction, with an unending grief, that you may be fighting illness, in the middle of a battle with poverty, though you may be battling injustice, though lying voices surround you today, fighting the, maybe you're fighting the fear of death itself, may we remember that the battle has already been won. Your king has broken all the powers of evil and set the captives free. Your king has delivered us 
from the fear of death itself and given us a fullness of life that begins now. Your king, king's love has proven stronger than death such that the grave itself could not hold him down. A love that did not and could not live without us. And so he risked himself to reveal God to us. See, we look to Jesus in the moment of grief because he himself has been grieved. You can look to Jesus in the moment of death because he himself has gone down to the grave and like Jonah was spit back out. It couldn't keep him down. You look to Jesus as we struggle with poverty because he was born in a shelter for animals. You look to Jesus as you face injustice because himself being the king of the entire universe had to sit in a court and listen and be judged by corrupt people who sought to kill him simply because of who he is. You look to Jesus when you struggle to forgive and offer mercy because he is himself your forgiveness and your mercy and he is the way and the truth and the life. You have reason to celebrate this Christmas. You have a reason to smile. You have a reason for the trust that you have in the one in whom you have believed. You have the scriptures which testify of this king. Remember them. And remember the ones whom you have learned them from. So Paul's words live on today. We have this hope. We have a compass and a map. We have the man. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you because we can call you our king. And beyond king, we can call you our friend. And beyond friend, we can call you our brother. We thank you because you willingly give of yourself each and every single day for us to, to come to, a, to a, a deeper understanding of who you are and how you've always been there. And in this season in Christmas, Lord, we, we just simply pray that you may open our eyes to, to what Christmas truly means to each of us and to the people that we encounter around us. Be with us today as you've been always, walking with us, surrounding us, and, and, and encouraging us, and, and in growing us into mature uh, Christians, into mature people in, under your influence. We thank you so much for everything that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.